Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode 292 of the Family Medicine Rocks podcast for Thursday, February 7, 2013. On today's show, uh, coming up, a live interview with the president and founder of PrimaryCareProgress.com, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer, will be here in just a few minutes. Uh, and uh, a lot of good stuff here that we're going to be talking about. Very, uh, very excited about this chat we're going to be having in just a few minutes on episode 293 of the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast, starting. Uh... Couldn't find my music, sorry. <laughs> right now. medicine and social media this is the family medicine rocks podcast i'm your host my name is mike savilla your favorite family physician host what is this show about i get that question a lot (laughs) i tell people this is uh, social media through the eyes of a family physician i encourage you to check out my digital library of stuff at uh, familymedicinerocks.com shout out to all the people following me on twitter all eleven thousand. 320 people. Thank you so much for that. And also, shout out to all the people who like the Facebook page for this show, all 726 of you out there. Thank you so much for that. Today is Thursday, February 7, 2013. It is 3 p.m. Eastern time. And here at Family Medicine Rocks World Headquarters, it is. Uh, it feels like 35 degrees Fahrenheit. And how is uh, your week going out there, kids? I uh, do want to uh, start things off by thanking everybody for your support of uh, uh, the previous show, show number 292, just 36 hours old, and uh, already about 500 downloads on that. So thank you so much for that. Uh, just just out a couple days ago, and uh, all your support for that. Thank you so much uh, for that. I want to thank again my guest, uh, Aaron Meyer, who is in Kansas City right now. With the rest of my peeps changing the world out there, the, our friends at the American Academy of Family Physicians, our committee meetings are going on right now as we speak, and they're listening to this show when they should be paying attention to their committee meetings. So come on, kids. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> uh, and also a big announcement, uh, big announcement, two weeks from today uh, will be our good friend, uh, Kevin M.D. himself. Dr. Kevin Fell will be with us uh, to discuss his new book, Managing uh, so, excuse me, Establishing, Managing, and Protecting Your Online Reputation, a Social Media Guide for Physicians and Medical Practices. So uh, he'll be on this show in two weeks to talk about his new book. Very, very excited um, about that. Noel's very excited. Our guest is going to be coming up in just a few minutes. He's on hold right now, and he's hearing everything that I'm saying about him right at this second. And he can't say anything because he's on hold. 
<laughs> I know, just kidding. So, uh, so on the hold is uh, uh, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer, and uh, who have gotten to know in the past six months or so. Very inspiring uh, speaker. If you've seen him in person, and if you've heard him even on webinars and things, very cool. Our uh, have a very cool conversation. Uh, and one of the things that he brings out in his talks is this: he says, "Don't complain about what other people are saying about primary care." And that's what I'm telling people now: don't complain, persuade. Don't complain, persuade. We're going to talk about that during, during our during our talk here. And uh, just reading his bio, so uh, uh, Andrew is a, both a primary care clinician and community organizer with more than 15 years of experience working on uh, field campaigns. He is the he is a general internist providing primary care at a new patient centered medical home in Boston. In March 2009, Andrew Ford founded the Precursor. Uh, to PCP to advocate for improved primary care programming at uh, Harvard Medical School. As the president of PCP, Andrew speaks around the nation uh, about the strategic community engagement, clinical innovation, and direct action organizing around primary care. As an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School, Andrew also teaches and mentors medical students and residents. So go check out their website as well as primarycareprogress.com. They have cool stuff going on like webinars. Uh, there's also some pictures there from a leadership summit they had last fall and also their very cool National Primary Care Week photo campaign, which we'll all get into uh, just coming up. But first, I do want to thank uh, Block Talk Radio. Uh, for having me be a featured host on this very network. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and, uh, yes, uh, I've been a uh, social media hobbyist since uh, 2005. And if you're wondering, yes, I'm a real doctor. Yes, I am. I'm a uh, family physician in full-time private practice, meaning I see patients five days a week in the hospital in my office here in uh, beautiful northeastern Ohio. And I will uh, take my break. And just let people know who are listening live, yes, the chat room is open. So, uh Come in and make fun of me and uh, do what you usually do in there. So you're uh, listening to the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast, the unofficial podcast of the uh, Family Medicine Revolution. Just Google FM Revolution for more details. And also a member of the Proba Network of podcasts. You can get there by going to probanetwork.com. Dr. Andrew Morris Singer from primarycareprogress.com will be right after this break. We'll be right back. Medicine's leading voice in social media in my own mind. This is the uh, Family Medicine Rocks podcast. My name is Mike Savella. And on the line with us, uh, my good friend, uh, the president and founder of uh, PrimaryCareProgress.com, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the show there, my friend. Mike, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, uh, so are, are you at home base in Boston right now? Or are you getting ready for the big snowstorm that's coming your way there? Absolutely. It's uh, so we're based in Cambridge, and we are we are collecting water and cliff bars, and uh, lots of books to read because we figure our our, our iPhones are going to run out of juice, and we're going to have to go back to reading actual books. 
<laughs> wow. Well, I, I, did, did you break that to the staff that, that they may not have iPhone, uh, you know, capability? That's right. That's right. We're uh, we, we are bracing for uh, for a big storm though. It uh, it sounds like at at its peak we're going to have about three to four inches an hour. And last time we had this, I actually was an intern in the ICU. Got a call from a friend that he was literally stuck on a road which had essentially turned into a parking lot. Was abandoning his car, and I just thought sat there and said, "What a sweet day to be doing my twenty four hour ICU shift." <laughs> oh, good times, good times. <laughs> uh, so let's let's kind of get get into this here uh, a little bit, and I'm very excited that you're here. And, and you and I have been talking about this offline for months, uh, coming on and uh, uh, just uh, tearing up the place talking about primary care. But uh, uh, yeah, as I told you, kind of offline, there, there's a lot of my uh, listeners here that aren't, aren't even medicine; they're not really familiar with with the primary care and what the importance is. So my first 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 question to you, Andrew, is, you know, why did you choose primary care? Why did you choose internal medicine in the first place when you were a medical student? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's, uh, it's actually a question I ask the medical students a lot uh, as well. You know, for me, Mike, it was, it was kind of multifactorial. Um, when I was a student, some of the most inspiring uh, clinicians for, uh, for me who really mentored me were primary care docs. Right, they were pediatricians, they were family medicine docs, they were general internists. I loved watching the relationships that they built with their patients. I loved the important role that they played in their patients' lives and and, and the real comprehensiveness of their care. Uh, they didn't just manage some of the chronic diseases like high blood pressure, uh, you know, diabetes. They were addressing acute issues. They were helping people with behavioral health issues like depression and anxiety. And they were just also, you know, sort of watching and, and observing and, uh, you know, experiencing, uh, you know, uh, the, the things that the patients were experiencing in their own life and, and helping them navigate, uh, you know, this, this thing called our complicated healthcare system. So I knew I wanted to do that. I thought it was going to be engaging uh, and professionally fulfilling uh, and emotionally fulfilling. But then when I was a fourth-year med student, I really saw the, the profound um, bad things that can happen when someone doesn't have primary care. My, uh, my mom ended up in an ICU fighting for her life uh, on a ventilator for six weeks, essentially because she didn't have a primary care doc. And, uh, and that, for me, uh, you know, was just a, a real uh, difficult moment and helped me understand why primary care is so critical uh, to individuals but also to society uh, as a whole. Uh, and, and a lot of people can really relate to what you're saying. You know, can they, you're there. I mean, you know, you know a little bit about medicine, but, you know, you're there for your mom and, and you're trying to, you know, coordinate care, trying to get some communication uh, going and trying to figure out what's going on. And, and there's a lot of people out there who can really relate to that. And it's very frustrating uh, without the primary care physician or primary contact to try to, you know, not only figure out what's going on, but but to try to figure out what the next steps are and, and what to do as a family member. Um, I know a lot of people can relate to your story and, and, and uh, you know, kind of relate to the feelings and the frustrations that you went through during that time. 
Yeah, no, Mike. It's uh, it, it was a it was a real wild uh, experience um, because you know it, it's not like my mom didn't have care. I mean, like a lot of Americans, she had a bunch of different specialists she went to who focused on one aspect of her body, right? She had the ear, nose, throat doctor. She had the endocrinologist who helped with the uh, hormones. And, and then she had the orthopedics doc that focused on her bones. And, you know, she just didn't have that primary care physician, that personal physician who focused on the whole her, who sort of integrated everything, who, who took care of the comprehensive her. And so when she started developing these nonspecific symptoms that didn't fall into any one category, um, but were actually this pneumonia that was starting to take root in her lungs, none of those folks, none of those specialists were able or willing to take responsibility. And every one of them kept saying, go talk to your primary care doc. Linda, I don't think that this is your hormones. You really should talk to your primary care doc. She didn't have one, so she just bounced around. And then when she finally went to the emergency department, two weeks later, when they finally listened to her chest with a stethoscope and took an x-ray, it was so full of fluid, both lung fields, they had to intubate her in the emergency room, so stick a tube down her throat into her lungs because she could not um, oxygenate herself on her own. They brought her up to the ICU, and she stayed on that ventilator for six weeks. That's how sick she was. And it's all because she didn't have a primary care doc. And I saw, I saw the medical bill, Mike. It was crazy. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars that didn't need to happen because she could have gotten treated for you know a couple hundred dollars worth of antibiotics in the clinic and by a primary care doc if she had one, but she didn't. And this story happens all the time to Americans right now. Yeah, it's very, very frustrating. Um, let's uh, let's kind of uh, jump ahead a little bit and uh, you know talk about primary care progress, the precursor for primary care progress. And, and uh, as we start this part of the conversation, maybe share with my audience you know kind of where you went to medical school and residency and and uh, why that factors into the story because you know that environment where you you know were learning. Um, about medicine wasn't really, you know, very friendly towards primary care. Um, and, and why don't you pick up the story from there as far as, you know, how, how primary care progress, you know, eventually got started. Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm originally from New Jersey, and uh, I went to uh, undergrad uh, at Williams College in western Massachusetts. And uh, so I, I, I went to Harvard Medical School here in Boston, and you know, Harvard, like a lot of medical schools in the United States, doesn't really see uh, uh, its major priority uh, being turning out more primary care doctors, right? Like most medical schools in this country, it's sort of focused on turning out specialists, turning out people who pursue, you know, research careers to develop the next, you know, uh, designer drug, so on and so forth. So, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a sort of experience of being in a place where, you know, a lot of people were discouraging me from going into primary care. You know, if you wanted to go into primary care, Andrew, why did you come here to Harvard? Uh, you're too smart to go into primary care. Those sorts of admonishments uh, were pretty frequent. Um, and so, you know, when, when I got to my, uh, my fourth year and it was time to really decide what I wanted to do, um, 
it was clear to me based upon my experiences that I really wanted to be a primary care doc. I actually hadn't been exposed to family medicine that much. Uh, so it kind of wasn't even an option in my head. And the people that had mentored me were mostly internists. So I decided to go into internal medicine. Um, around that same time, I also had this experience where my mom was sick. And, and Mike, I can, I can distinctly remember this moment where when I was at the hospital with my mom, the, the, the emotion that, that, that really sticks with me is I was so angry because here was my mom fighting, her, fighting for her life because basically she didn't have a primary care doc um, and she was experiencing late-term consequences of, of, of missing out on care, right, and having, uh, you know, uh, things progress to, a, you know, a really significant level before she actually got to someone who could take care of her. So here was someone facing that. There were millions of other, other Americans facing a similar situation, and I was at a medical school that was actively discouraging people from going into primary care. So it was it was this incredibly frustrating uh, you know situation, but so at the medical school I decided to go into primary care. But um, a couple years later, when I was in my residency, the school actually decided to defund its division of primary care. So despite all the stuff that they had previously done, you know, discouraging primary care careers, not really supporting an interest in uh, you know primary care professional uh, pursuit. On top of that, they defunded the division of primary care. And that so, was the so, impetus. So, so yeah. you're there, and, and you hear about this, and they're like, they're going to take all the money away, and they're going to, like, I guess, essentially close the division of, of primary care at your school. And, exactly. And you sit there, and, and you're like, uh, what do we do now? That's what I, right. that's what I would imagine in my mind. Like, uh, right. Great, thanks. Yeah, insult to injury. I mean, there were a lot of people in the community, the primary care community at Harvard at that time, who saw that defunding as the final nail being hammered into the coffin of Harvard primary care. I mean, they basically were like, this this ground is poisoned, you know, move west, head out, you know, we should just get out of here. It's all, you know, let's, you know, nothing good is going to come of this. But yeah. there was actually a group of students and residents who said, wait a second, this is an ideal moment for us to bring the academic primary care community together to simply say, no, you can't do that. You can't defund this division of primary care at this moment in American medical history, right? We know there's a shortage of primary care docs in this country. We need to improve how primary care is delivered. Um, you know, more and more people are gaining coverage, and they're going to need a frontline provider. And at the same time, at that same moment, an important medical school in this country is basically turning its back on primary care. The way we figured it, not on our watch. You cannot do that. And we thought to ourselves, if we, if we take a non-academic approach to this, if, if instead of writing a paper on the importance of primary care, we instead call a meeting where we get all the people that support primary care into the same room to basically show the dean there's a tremendous amount of support for primary care. You can't just shut the division like this. We figured they would change their decision. They would refund this division, and that's really how primary care progress was born. It was this moment where the academic primary care community, meaning the students, the residents, the faculty, all the people who cared about primary care, came together and in one clear voice said, no, you can't do this right now. And that really has begun a, a movement that has spread across this country 
uh, in academic medical settings, so medical schools, uh, other health professional trainee schools, where increasingly trainees uh, are saying, look, primary care is important, these medical schools got to get behind it. They've got to get behind family medicine. The time is now. And it's just been exploding. It's been very, very cool. And I think that's you, how uh, you and I met. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I, I came to see uh, you know one of your talks, and uh, uh, it was. Uh, uh, we'll get in, into kind of the uh, uh, the nuts and bolts of, of some of the the uh, um, why we think that uh, uh, primary care uh, is important. Um, but uh, my guest on the line is the, the president and founder of, of Primary Care Progress, Dr. Andrew Morris uh, Singer. Uh, uh, check out their stuff at primarycareprogress.com. Uh, so let, let's kind of get into the, to the whys it's it's important. And I think people around the country, and Andrew, you, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but, but I think uh, the, the common person out there, the, the common citizen out there, I think they're really starting to get it as far as, you know, why our uh, healthcare system is broken. You know, the, the, the incentives of, of um, you know, why to deliver care. They're all messed up. They're all screwed up. They, people have been knowing that for years, but I think people are really starting to uh, uh, understand why it, it's it's so broken. And uh, that, and I know when you when you get into your talks and when you, especially when you're talking to medical students, uh, you talk about the that the incentives are wrong and that that the the incentives now are to you know, treat uh, people with procedures as opposed to, you know, other types of things. Once you get into that a little bit, when you're talking to medical students and, and how you're trying to lay the framework on, on you know, how our, our uh, medical system is broken here in this country. Sure. Well, you know, the, the, the first thing I'd say, Mike, is I don't even know if we could really call it a system. I mean, the, the concept of a system means a group of people at a certain point came up with a plan, said, hey, this is what our health care you know, uh, infrastructure and the plan should look like, and uh, now that we have a vision of it, let's organize it and let's move it all forward. And I don't think that ever happened. Uh, we've got an incredibly dysfunctional, fragmented system of, uh, of care, and, uh, and, and, it, and it, it is not really serving the needs of the patient's uh, and it's not really serving the needs of, of people who pay for care. And I think, you know, I think most of your callers probably understand the concept that we spend uh, at least double uh, what other countries spend on health care. Um, and yet, despite all that spending, we get pretty marginal quality. So we're like number 16th uh, in line uh, amongst some of the other Western industrialized nations in terms of premature death, right? Uh, you know, our, our, uh, our mortality, our morbidity uh, data uh, and performance is just really lagging behind other countries despite all this money we put into healthcare. So the quality is not there. Um, I think patients also understand that it's it's difficult to get seen these days. I can't tell you how many patients say, I've got to wait for months uh, in order to actually establish a primary care doc. And then when I have an acute problem like a headache or, you know, a belly pain that's not getting better, I call in and I can't be seen for a few weeks. And then when I do get into the office, you know, I have to wait sometimes 45, sometimes 90 minutes, then the doctor comes in and she's rushed. She only gives me eight minutes. She doesn't answer all my questions. She's staring at the screen the whole time typing. She leaves and I'm like, 
what just happened? Um, this is not primary care. This is too little, too late. Uh, so I think a lot of patients are acknowledging uh, that the current way the system is delivering care isn't really uh, serving their needs. And it's the causes are multifactorial. It has to do with how we train. It has to do with how we pay for care, which is incentivizing this type of care. Uh, it has to do with the fact that specialists are paid a lot more money for their care than primary care docs, which really devalues uh, the type of care. Uh, it has to do with our culture. Uh, it's really multifactorial, but bottom line is it's not working. Yeah, and a lot of people know it's not working, and it's it, it's uh, it's very frustrating. Uh, and, you know, working in the system, and it, it's very frustrating trying to explain to people about this um, and then you introduce all the politics in it, which is, just makes it a big old mess, um, and, and nobody's really happy with this. <laughs> uh, and uh, we talk to patients every day about it, and it's uh, 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 it's, it's just really very frustrating. Uh, but but uh, you know, one of the, the cool things that Primary Care Progress does is uh, is that you go all around the country, and people talk to you, and people talk to people involved with primary care progress and and uh, i guess one of the things that one of the themes is that you know that there are certain people there are certain groups um out there innovators that are doing good stuff as far as saying you know, we can do this better here are some good uh examples of that how we do it not only do we have good examples of that we we have uh data uh to prove that we can deliver it cheaper we can deliver it with high quality um, I know you have a lot of stories uh, about about these type of things. Um, um, I didn't know if if you wanted to start out with one of them and and uh, just just kind of because uh, because I know that you love sharing these stories, Andrew, about the great stuff that people are doing around the country. Yeah, I mean, Mike, there's uh, there's so many people out there who are doing amazing stuff. I, I I call them the primary care rock stars, and if you want to know how I honestly think about myself. I consider myself the primary care groupie, right? Like I'm going out, <laughs> running after those people. You know, you you were playing uh, some Guns N' Roses earlier, so I, I, I think your fans probably understand the concept of the groupie. But that's me. I'm the primary care groupie searching out the primary care rock stars, of which you are one, Mike, and I think we all know that. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it it's so interesting. Everyone's doing this differently in, in different places, um, but – you know, let me let me tell you about my uh, my medical director. Um, this guy, uh, Dr. Stuart Pollock, is uh, a general internist, and you know he's part of the Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital system here in Boston that delivers exceptional care. It's known as you know what we call a tertiary care institution, uh, offering very specialized care, but also primary care. And he, um, you know, he was part of a practice, uh, primary care practice that was traditional in its model, meaning it used the, the type of care delivery model where the doc does everything. And, and I think a lot of your listeners would be used to that notion, right? Anything that needs to happen, the, the primary care doc does it. You know, he or she is, is uh, you know, uh, changing your medications for your chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension, but he or she is also addressing your headache, and they're filling out your physical exam form, and they send in your, your medications to your pharmacy, and they're also writing letters with the results of your, you know, your cholesterol panel, et cetera, et cetera. Um, problem is, though, that Dr. Pollock knew that, you know, one doctor can't do all of this, and when we try to, it's just too much stuff. 
um, and we usually forget stuff. It's not of the highest quality. That that's one of the reasons we're rushing. So so he basically, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, he joined a team that was redesigning how care was being delivered in this new model called a patient-centered medical home. And there are a lot of ingredients to the patient-centered medical home, but one of them, the most important, was this notion of team-based care. So instead of the doctor trying to do everything for everyone and, and failing, because it's impossible, what we did is what he did was basically ask all members of the care team to operate at the top of their skill set and share the care. So when I say all members of the care team, I mean the medical assistant, the nurse, the social worker, right? All of those folks now are sharing some of the tasks that previously were done by a doctor, and it enables the doctor now to operate at the top of his or her skill set. So previously, you know, the doctor might be sending faxes or, you know, writing letters with, uh, you know, normal cholesterol results uh, or asking the patient, hey, did you get your colonoscopy? Great. What was the date of it? But now those things are being done by other members of the care team so the doctor can hone in on what he or she does really well. And those three important things that doctors do are, number one, the therapeutic relationship. So build an alliance with the patient, really get to know them, their needs, how they like to receive care, so on and so forth. Number two is we've got to integrate with the specialists, right? The specialists are doing a ton of stuff, and it's critically important that we communicate with them and that we coordinate their care, right? They're doing a lot of different stuff. We don't want those things to fall through the cracks. And, and the third thing is basically managing difficult diagnostic dilemmas. So Dr. Pollock basically took a practice and redesigned how the entire team works. And what we found is it works better for patients, it works better for the care team, and our outcomes are much better. And all of that stuff, as surprising as this will sound, all of that for less spending. It's remarkable. But this story of Dr. Pollock and his care team it's taken it's taken off across the country literally it's taken place in thousands of practices and patients love it uh yeah they 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 do love it um and uh, the 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 docs that i talk to that are doing this um you know everybody's uh satisfaction scores go up patient satisfaction scores physician provider satisfaction scores staff provider scores go up um you know a lot of this is is, is as far as you know, t- a team-based care type of system, which is different uh, than how we usually you know do things, and, and people are going to have to get used to that, and um, and it, it is going to be a little bit of a change. Um, but but you're right, Andrew. I mean, you know, the the the, the physician, the provider cannot do it all herself or himself. We've been trying to do it. We've been failing at doing it, um, and we all know that it works. It's just um, you know, how to implement that change um, in that setting uh, when, when people don't like change that much. And, and that's not only is that a challenge, but I think it's very exciting. Um, and, and I know in my own office and in my own clinic, I work with four other family docs, and, and I've, I've been trying to, to pitch a lot of these concepts and ideas, and uh, it's been very difficult, and I can very much relate to those docs out there saying, you know, you people are just crazy. How can you do this? Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of docs that say, hey, Mike, you know, how's it going in your clinic? I'm like, well, we haven't implemented any of this stuff or very little of this stuff. Uh, and they're like, well, how can, you, how can you be an advocate for this if you're not actually doing it? I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I'm 
doing like everybody else. I'm trying to make the case uh, to people uh, that this is a good idea. Uh, so I very much relate to those practices and those clinics out there that are struggling with this. Um, but uh, it, it is it is groups like Primary Care Progress who who are carrying the torch and, and trying to to share more and more examples of out there because it is you know trying to really get that um, critical mass of. of providers and physicians to really get through this. It's exciting, but, you know, I tell people, well, my practice is struggling as well to try to get some of these done, uh, these things done. And, and it's tough, but, you know, it's, it's, I'm still hopeful. <laughs> There's a lot to be hopeful for, Mike. And, um, you know, it, it, it is a change. It is a, it, it is a, a, a transformation. And, you know, we're, we're, things change very slowly in, in medicine. And, and I think that's a good thing because, the medications that we're dealing with, the procedures that we uh, utilize, I mean, th- these things can be very dangerous, right? There are medications out there that, that can kill you. I mean, there are procedures out there that if we don't do them right, p- people can lose limbs. So it should, I think, be slow change that occurs uh, in medicine. But at the end of the day, though, I think what we realized in primary care is that if we can't figure out a sustainable model where a doctor and another member of the care team can come to work and sustain that type of care delivery every day, then we've got a big problem because we just won't have the workforce. Americans won't be able to find primary care if we can't figure out a way to actually deliver it, not only today, but tomorrow and next week and next year. And we were... uh, we were running short on that in, in primary care. And so a group of people, uh, you know, y- yourself included, have said, look, we've got to change, we've got to transform, we've got to do this together. We need data to do this as much as possible, but we also need stories, we need anecdotes, we need inspiration, uh, we need the support of government, we need the support of payers. And that movement to support primary care as it transforms into what patients need uh, is occurring all around us right now, and uh, and it's just so very exciting and, and fun for that matter. My um, guest on the line uh, is uh, my good friend, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer, the uh, president and founder of Primary Care Progress. Check him out at uh, primarycareprogress.com. And uh, yeah, let's pick up on that. Let's pick up on the the, the, the payer piece there. And uh, you know, who, who the heck is going to do the who's going to pay for this, Andrew? We get this question all the time. Um, <clears throat> why don't you? Uh, um, you know, share a little bit about that as far as how you respond to that and, and, and talk about uh, our, our good friend uh, Paul Grundy and, and how you present with him and how he kind of frames some of these uh, uh, stories and arguments when he talks to people who are actually going to pay for this awesome care. Yeah, that's no, a great question. So I think I think the first thing I'd say is it, it's worth spending a minute on the old way of paying, which is actually not that old. Most of us are still getting paid in this way, but it's the way that doesn't work, uh, and we're trying to transform away from it. But your your listeners might have heard of the concept of fee-for-service, right? That's how most doctors in this country are paid right now. And that means, uh, you know, I do a service, I get a face. So, uh, you know, anytime I do something for you, which is usually in the form of a face-to-face visit, uh, I get paid. Now, the, the two problems with that old model is the financial incentive is, is clearly to do stuff, right? If I only get paid when I do something to you, Mike, 
I'm going to be incentivized to do something to you, whether or not it's actually indicated. And that's the kicker. Health economists have actually looked at healthcare spending. They believe that one-third of healthcare spending in this country is totally unnecessary, should not have happened. Right, 44% of the heart catheterizations that occur at some academic institutions, right, and the heart catheterization is where you're having a heart attack, so we thread that catheter up your groin into your heart to bust that plaque open, right? 44% in some studies of the catheterizations happening are unnecessary. And they think that's because we, we pay fee for service, right? We pay you whether or not you should have actually done the service. The second concept is that specialty, invasive, highly technologically advanced procedures are paid much higher rates than primary care. So we're incentivizing care whether or not it's necessary, and we're incentivizing a very specific type of care, um, which means that you know your average primary care doc has to do very short visits face-to-face, and a ton of them, in order to keep the overhead uh, covered in his or her office. So to to say in business, they literally have to churn through these visits like a hamster wheel. That's why we say sometimes we feel like we're on a hamster wheel, because we're literally running from face-to-face visit to -to face-to-face visit to make this happen. So we've seen what that's done, right? We don't have enough primary care providers. Uh, The quality of care is not that high. Patients are feeling rushed. Their questions aren't answered. and, And health spending is completely out of control. So then a new system of payment has come into view. And the interesting thing is the movement was really started by payers, right, by large corporations that pay for the health care of their employees like IBM, like Whirlpool, like GM, right, General Motors. These places that have been paying a ton of money over the years, seeing their competitiveness drop, losing jobs to other uh, countries because uh, we just can't afford health care benefits. And so they finally said, you know what? We've looked at the data and we've realized we're spending so much uh, money uh, taking care of the health care of our patients, but we've realized it's all late care. It's, It's sick care. It's it's we don't manage their diabetes up front, and so they need to go on dialysis, and we pay for dialysis. But if we'd actually paid up front for their primary care, we could have prevented dialysis, and we wouldn't have only been spending less, but they would have been healthier and happier. So these new models of payment have come into being, and they are, uh, you know, some of them are called capitated payments, right, bundled payments. Uh, where instead of paying for every single visit for a patient, they just give a, a lump sum of money to a healthcare system and say, hey, this is Mrs. Smith. Take care of her, right? Prevent her from having a heart attack. Prevent her diabetes from getting out of control. And here's the money to do it. And you guys are the docs. You guys are the health practitioners. You know what to do. So now go and do it. So capitated payments like that are coming into being. Payers are also starting to pay for things they didn't used to pay for, like care coordination. Care coordination is when the nurse makes sure that you and your issues don't fall through the cracks. It's critically important. Terrible things happen when patients and their issues fall through the cracks. So payers are starting to pay for that, uh, which is awesome. So there are new models of payment which are moving us away from this fee-for-service system. They're moving us much more towards a health care, uh, you know, health management uh, systems, and they're giving more money uh, to primary care. 
And at the end of the day, that gives us the ability to actually provide a much higher value uh, level of service uh, to our patients. I mean, you know, the patients at the practice where I'm at, Mike, and I work at a patient-centered medical home, they tell me all the time. They literally stop me at the end of the visit, and they say, I want you to know how much I appreciate the care that I receive here. And, and they don't say from you. They don't say, Dr. Morris Singer, you provide me with amazing care. They say, this team provides me with amazing care because it's not just me. It's me, it's Sarah, the social worker, it's Sonia, the pharmacist, it's Leslie, the nurse, uh, it's Mara, the nutritionist. We all work as a team uh, because increasingly we're getting payments that support our efforts. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that, that is a, a great way to, to to describe it uh, a lot more eloquently than I try to describe it to patients because I just get so frustrated. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, and it's, it's trying to explain that. It's just like, you know, I, I, you know, I don't get payment and, and, and my staff doesn't get payment unless I do something. Like if I bring you into the office, um, you know, why, you, why can't you just call this in or, or why can't we have a, you know, an email, you know, doctor-patient relationship. I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into that, but a lot of that is uncompensated uh, care. You know, and you know, every day in my office, I get this form that I have to fill out for A, B, and C company, or their employer, or for their child, or or for a drug company, or something like that. Um, you know, people just don't understand that that you know that that is the time of you know my time and my staff's time to to get that correct information in there, but that is not, that's not compensated there. And, and in our, in the current model that, that I'm in now, not that you're in, but that, that I'm in now. And, and it is, uh, it's difficult to try to explain that to people, but, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, that it's, uh, I, 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 maybe you did say that to, to me before, but I didn't know that that payers kind of originated the idea and say, Hey, you know, we're paying all this money uh, for the care of our, workers or our employees we're not really getting much quality for it can we do it something differently and uh, i didn't realize that uh, that they were maybe the, the first people to say hey can we do this differently and and uh that that actually makes me feel a little bit better because that that actually challenges me challenges the system and say you know uh to for us to get our own data and say hey you know we keep you know these people out of the hospital meaning that we save your company x number of dollars and and you know is that something that that can be you know, rewarded to us for keeping them out of the hospital for expensive care. A lot of different kind of out-of-the-box type of things are going on, and, and it's very exciting these days. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, your your listeners are in a very unique position right now. And, and frankly, I mean, we need their help. I mean, we need everyone's help to push this forward. But but we need their help in a, in a, in a few very specific ways uh, related to what we were just talking about. Number one, Mike, like, like you were saying, many practitioners out there aren't really sold on this medical home concept, right? They haven't trained like this. They haven't practiced like this. They've done everything themselves, and it's been, it's been sort of hunky-dory to, to date. But the way they've been delivering care, it's not going to work in that way anymore. And so patients can actually increasingly approach their practitioners and say, hey, I've heard about this team-based care approach. I've heard that other doctors are having telephone visits and email encounters with their patients. Um, do you have that here? Uh, can we possibly do that uh, here? Do you have a nutritionist or a social worker that on your team that I can work with? Because that will increasingly help some of these practitioners understand that their patients 
want a, a higher value uh, service, that they want a different style of care. Um, the second thing, though, is patients have this opportunity with their third-party payers, right? You give a ton of money to your third-party payer, whether it's Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield, name a third-party payer and insurer. Some of them have bought into this model of a patient-centered medical home, of team-based care. Others haven't. So patients can increasingly say to their, uh, you know, their third-party payer, hey, I want to receive patient-centered medical home care, and I would like you to use your purchasing power to encourage more practitioners to, uh, to provide care in this model. Uh, and when a third-party payer, when, when I, the doctor, am receiving uh, money from different third-party payers and all of them start saying, hey, to what degree are you a medical home? To what degree are you using team-based care? All of a sudden, that starts to, uh, to affect my thinking. And, you know, if enough of the, the third-party payers say something, I might say, hey, you know, maybe it's time to transform into this, this medical home thing. And it just might make my practice life uh, a little better as well. Um, on the line with us uh, is uh, my good friend, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer, uh, the president and founder of uh, Primary Care Progress. Uh, check him out at primarycareprogress.com. Uh, uh, and uh, just kind of in our uh, remaining moments here, uh, I do want you to talk a little bit about the organization. Um, and uh, you guys are getting chapters all over the place uh, now, and it's very exciting. You're having all these uh, local-level meetings. And on my Twitter feed uh, right now, uh, Looks like there's a leadership meeting going on, I think, in Baylor right now, and uh, they could be listening to the show. So, shout out to all the people out there. Uh, um, tell me, audience, a little bit about the Primary Care Progress Organization and uh, how it's been going. Yeah, it's been it's been going great, Mike, and obviously, I really appreciate all your endorsements of uh, you know of what we're doing. Um, you know, the 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 basic gist of what we do is is team. We we use team to try and improve how trainees are being mentored about primary care. We use team to advocate at medical schools for better programming uh, for primary care. We use team in academic clinics, you know, where residents are training to, uh, to transform into a higher value model uh, of primary care delivery. And when I say team, I, I really mean an inclusive team. We, we've realized that if it's just doctors trying to transform, uh, you know, uh, primary care, or if it's just, you know, the family medicine people trying to transform, we're, we're, we're only utilizing one of the tools in our toolkit, right? We're, we're, we're operating, uh, you know, uh, with, with less resources than we actually have. So we believe that teamwork is not only critical to delivering care, uh, in a clinic, we believe teamwork is is critical to uh, to transforming the experience at medical schools and helping a new generation see a future for themselves in primary care. So we have these chapters at medical schools, 24 medical schools around the country, that have students in them, residents. We have family medicine people. We have internal medicine people, pediatrics. We increasingly have nurses and physicians assistants, and they're coming together to promote primary care, to talk about the value of it, uh, which is really important for the next generation to hear so they increasingly see a future for themselves. We're using the space to get people exposed to these new models of care um, because you, you might be surprised by this, but most trainees have never been exposed to this new model of care. It's this crazy aspect of our training uh, institutions, but most trainees have never seen a medical home. And then finally, we use this space to actually transform how, uh, how care is delivered. 
and you know, I, I think a testament to, to the value of this uh, is uh, you know the the number of trainees that are now really getting excited to go into primary care. They're learning the new skills of some of these new models, and it's great. You know, a family medicine doc and an internal medicine doc, you know, are on the phone together, uh, you know, and have been working together uh, th- through this model. You know, it's 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 team. Uh, and yeah, what, 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 and when I've seen you speak to to medical students and residents, and uh, I kind of you know see the the thoughts that are going through their heads because you're really uh, not only challenging them but empowering them and say, hey, you know, there's this new model out there. Don't wait for it to come to you. Go out there and find out where they are. There are a lot of places out there where you can kind of see this new model of care going on. You can go be a part of it. You can go experience it. You can go get your training in it. So, um, because you're ready, Andrew. I mean, you're not going to you have to do it after medical school and residency unless you trained in it. And and just you're right. I mean, there's a lot of schools out there that that for one reason or another they don't have this training available to students and and we have to you know empower these students to say hey it is out there um and if you want to know about it uh, you have to go out and, and get it and and the other theme that always comes out in your talks andrew is just yeah breaking down these silos you know it's it, it is primary care um you know it is family medicine you know reaching out and working with internal medicine and vice versa in pediatrics and physicians working with nurse practitioners and 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 uh, physicians assistants and and MAs and LPNs and and, and social workers and and this whole team concept that is a huge paradigm shift that is it that is nothing that's ever been done before but it's just it has to be done um and it's it's exciting and challenging to see how we can get from this point a right now to where uh to point b at the finish and uh, uh it's it's great to just kind of try to see how can we make that happen um and how we how can we bring about that change absolutely and you know it's it's so interesting also to um to see some of the things that we're up against because you know the 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 move towards a uh, you know highly specialized healthcare workforce and heavy biotechnology and research i mean it's been going on for so long that it's just so enmeshed in all facets of both our medical and, and regular culture i mean i'm sure that your listeners would feel um would not be surprised to think about the fact that they've probably participated in this culture in in so far as the following when when they have a friend or a family member come home from medical school and say hey i uh you know i, I i've just decided what i want to do in terms of uh, you know health professional career what's the first thing that they ask they ask oh great what did you what specialty did you decide to go into right what are you going to specialize in no one ever gets excited when someone says, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a primary care doc. People always say, really, you're not going to specialize? So th- this is a culture that, uh, that we're, you know, we're up against, and that's why I think it requires us to be engaging all members of the team, patients included, and we've got to use all tools in our toolkit. And um, you know, at the end of the day, I just think trainees have such an important role to play. I mean, at the end of the day, this is, this is a revolution. And, uh, you know, and, and what revolution in the United States has not been built on the shoulders of young people? Um, every single one of them has. So it's, uh, it's an exciting moment. 
Um, I did want to uh, mention a couple specific primary care uh, progress uh, projects. Uh, uh, these uh, clinical innovation webinars that you have on the front page of uh, primarycareprogress.com. Um, can you speak a little bit about to that? You know, what's the subject matter? Who who have you had on it? And and uh, you know why is it so cool that, that people should uh, check them out? Sure. So these are the cutting-edge innovations in how primary care is being delivered and how the next generation is being trained. And what we do is we're constantly looking around the country for the people who are doing really exciting stuff but not necessarily being spotlighted. So, for instance, uh, two weeks ago we highlighted Dr. Carl Morris, who is a family medicine program director out at Group Health in Seattle. They're doing amazing stuff. And uh, we've had a lot of people in our network say, hey, how do you transform a residency clinic into this medical home thing? And so we brought about 60 people from around the country, students, residents, faculty, family medicine, pediatrics, internal medicine, so on and so forth, to listen to Dr. Morris uh, and his residents talk about what they're doing. We put on similar webinars like that uh, once a month uh, because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people around the country are are working in academic communities where this stuff hasn't taken off yet. But if they hear about someone doing something similar uh, on the other side of the country, and it gives them an idea, it might just give them the inspiration and some of the concrete steps they can take, and then the next thing you know, they're off to the races, and they're kicking off a medical home project in, in their neighborhood, um, which is just awesome. Uh, and a lot of people became uh, familiar with primary care progress uh, last fall during National Primary Care Week, and uh, it was it was a great uh, kind of photo uh, uh, campaign uh, uh, to raise awareness and advocacy. And uh, can you speak a little bit about that? About uh, you know the, uh, how the idea came about and and you know what what the what the uh, response was because it was just it's just phenomenal for that I don't know two or three week period where where that momentum was continually building and seeing more pictures and and uh, it was it was great to kind of see that uh, be very successful. Yeah, we wanted to create a space, Mike, where um, people could really articulate why they thought primary care was so important. And to date, National Primary Care Week had been this, uh, you know, this wonderful event, but where people in their own communities would do small little gatherings of primary care people to, to talk about why it was so important. But we felt there, there really needed to be a space where we could come together as a national community in a very visual way to show why primary care was important and, and where it wouldn't just be the doctors and the medical students uh, talking about why primary care was so important, but it would be all of us, patients, uh, nurses, pharmacists, so we asked people to, uh, to to basically take a white piece of paper and write a message on it of why they thought primary care was so important. And so people started taking pictures. Some of them were pretty lighthearted. Uh, you know, uh, some of them were uh, very serious. But, you know, we had thousands of people uh, take these pictures. We, you know, we had people take pictures of themselves with their patients, or patients take pictures. Uh, you know, we had people take pictures with their pets. Uh, you know, I saw one great picture of uh, of a dog uh, that uh, that said, "A day without primary care is rough." <laughs> <laughs> so it was uh, it was really great. 
uh, and I think one of my favorite ones uh, was this um, you know, this older um, uh, female, and uh, uh, you can see she was probably in her 70s and 80s, and, and she has a, it's a simple message, simple science, says primary care got me this far. And uh, uh, that was a, a, one of the pictures that, that resonates with me, and I know a lot of people mentioned uh, that to me uh, as well. And uh, a very, very simple message. Uh, you can see it in the snapshot, and uh, it was just it was a great idea, and it was, it was great seeing so much support uh, from all over uh, to uh, to help uh, get the word out about primary care. Absolutely, and, and we're hoping to continue that campaign uh, going forward. We're looking for fun, you know, engaging, inclusive, uh, visual ways, uh, you know, of, of continuing this conversation. And, and the bottom line is we really need a space where everyone feels like they can participate because given what we're up against uh, in terms of transforming our healthcare system, uh, you know, it, 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 we're, we're going to need, we're going to need to really be operating uh, as a team and, uh, and and we're just so delighted that more and more people, uh, you know, from different divisions of primary care, different professions, uh, are starting to get this. And uh, it's it's just a really exciting time. Uh, but we've got to work together uh, if we're going to achieve the the healthcare system uh, that America needs and wants. Um, and as far as uh, you know, 2013 and primarycareprogress.com. I mean, uh, I'm not asking you to reveal any uh, corporate secrets or anything. But, uh, <laughs> are, are, are there are there things kind of in the works? I know there are always things uh, kind of in the works at uh, PCP, but there, there's things that uh, you're able to share as far as future projects or future webinars coming up for the rest of this calendar year. Absolutely, Mike, and uh, and I appreciate you uh, put, putting in the plug. So a few different things. Number one, we, we do a ton of leadership trainings around the country, both for our chapters uh, as well as other health professional trainee students who want to learn some of the leadership skills that are part and parcel of building and sustaining teams and, and managing change. So we're going to be doing more and more of those trainings around the country, and people can request those trainings uh, from us, uh, from our field team. Our Clinical Innovation Network sponsors these monthly webinars where we're highlighting some of the most innovative practices uh, around the country. We're going to be uh, highlighting student-run primary care clinics. We're going to be highlighting interprofessional uh, education opportunities, uh, mental health integration into primary care, some really important topics uh, that are, that are kind of new things for a lot of primary care uh, practices. So all of that uh, is going to be coming up, and, and people can learn more about that on our uh, on our Clinical Innovation Network. And then finally, uh, we've got our uh, you know our national summit, uh, which uh, which is happening in the fall, uh, where we bring together people from all across the country to come share the stuff that uh, that they've been pushing forward in their communities. So a lot of a uh, lot of fun stuff, uh, you know, up and coming, and then tons of videos, media, blogging, tweeting. All that, uh, all that good stuff that you are the expert on, Mike. <laughs> uh, Dr. Andrew Morris Singer uh, has been uh, my guest, and Andrew, I will let you uh, kind of gather some uh, thoughts for some for some closing thoughts. And I love how you say that this is really our moment. But uh, before that, uh, I do want to let people know about your information: uh, primarycareprogress.com, uh, and uh, they're on Twitter as well. They're on Facebook. Uh, they are uh, pretty much uh, everywhere. And, and if you haven't heard about them already, uh, uh, you will. Uh, because I know they have some huge plans for, for this year and for 
for next year uh, coming up. And it's it's been great to to have you on the show. But uh, as we kind of have our our, our closing uh, moments here, uh, Dr. Andrew Moore Singer, uh, President and Founder of our Primary Care Progress dot uh, com, uh, do you have any kind of uh, closing thoughts uh, for the audience uh, today, having to do with uh, primary care or anything else that you'd like to talk about as we close our the conversation today? Well, Mike, I, I appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to talk and, and really value what you do. You know, for me, this is a this is not only an issue of the profession that I'm in, uh, but uh, this is a deeply personal issue. Primary care. I, you know, I came very close to losing my mom uh, because she didn't have primary care, and I'm deeply committed to uh, to helping transform our primary care system. Uh, and this is an issue that. Uh, is critically important to our nation's health, to individuals' health. And to fix this, though, it's it's going to require profound teamwork, and we're starting to see that happening across the country. And I'm just so very delighted. I'm delighted that you, a family med doc, and, and me, a general internist, are such good friends and working collaboratively. I think it's a model for the future. I think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Uh, and just like you said, this is our moment. This is our moment to get it right. Uh, and you know, I really feel bad that uh, you know we haven't been able to to mention all the the, the great uh, people on your team. We'll have to bring you back at some point, and, and we'll talk about them. And, and I know that you and I and, and and me and your staff are trying to work out a schedule for me to come out to Boston and to uh, to visit with the team out there and and some with some awesome people uh, out there to to see what's doing with the with primary care. But uh, uh, I just want to say thanks again, Andrew, for for coming on the show. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with uh, Primary Care Progress in any kind of capacity that. You would want me to do to, to try to, to help help you guys out. Uh, uh, this is this has been a lot of fun. We have, we have to bring you back, and we can we can talk about how things are going, and we can talk about whatever you, you want to talk about there, Andrew. So thank you so much for the time, sir. Hey, Mike. Thanks for uh, having us, and uh, really uh, excited to be on your team as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the time, and, and uh, have a great rest of the day. Look out for that uh, snowstorm out there, and, and pre- prepare the team out there in Boston for losing their iPhone connections. I think I think they'll be okay. I'm, I'm collecting salt as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> take All care, right, Mike. Take care. Buddy. All right. We'll see you. Okay. <laughs> All right, kids. So uh, that ends my show here uh, today. Uh, how about that, kids? How about that? You know, I always talk about, you know, the power of storytelling to, you know, get your point across. You know, um, you know, don't complain, persuade. You know, how do you persuade better than storytelling? And uh, you know, nobody does it better than uh, Dr. Andrew Borsinger. I've been taking notes this whole time on. I can always. We can always tell our story more eloquently and better using examples uh, and uh, save this show, kids, because this is kind of how you do uh, communication. And uh, I am very much looking forward to working with Andrew, working with the team at uh, Primary Care Progress, and uh, thank you. Uh, so much again for coming uh, on the show. So that is my show here for today. So uh, uh, again, big shout out to my uh, peeps out there in uh, Kansas City at the American Academy of Family Physicians Committee meetings. I know they're going to be listening to the show and see, listen to the show, change the world out there, kids. Get excited, get mad, get empowered, and uh, change the world out there, uh, kids. Uh, so and again, uh, big show two weeks from now, uh, Thursday, February 21, 2013, at 2:30 p.m. Eastern. Standard time. Dr. Kevin Foe will be as Kevin MD will be here himself talking about his new book, Establishing, Managing, and Protecting Your Online Reputation, a social media guide for physicians 
and medical practices. So thanks again uh, for coming uh, and listening to the show live and also uh, downloading it on the podcast there. So my name is Mike Savola. Go and check out FamilyMedicineRocks.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'm also on uh, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, all that all that stuff out there. So have a good week. Have a good weekend. Hey, Northeastern United States, look out for the snow. Be safe, and we'll talk to you all very soon. Have a good day, everybody.